Last week we looked at the king's reward and began to look at how God blessed the efforts of Christ as he died on the cross and immediately we began to see the fruit of Jesus' death burst forth. While many of Jesus' disciples grieved, there was already evidence that Jesus' life and death had accomplished a great thing. Disciples were grieving, but people were being saved. We saw the centurion was converted, and the criminal was in paradise, and the crowd was dramatically changed. And then last week we saw the most unlikely of men revealed his commitment to Christ. Someone that we'll see today was actually uh, afraid to come forward and speak of Christ, then stands up boldly and does some things that just go totally contrary. The council member, Joseph of Arimathea, a member of the Sanhedrin and a famous man in Jerusalem, he shows respect and honor to Jesus even after his death in such a shameful way. At Grace on Campus this Thursday, we covered a verse that summarizes this great contrast between true followers of Jesus and those who reject him. We see an example of a true follower in Joseph of Arimathea. And the contrast are those that are going to continue to reject Jesus in the beginning of the church and even to persecute those that believe. But look over for a second at, at Romans chapter 9 verse 33 and look at this verse. It's interesting that the Apostle Paul quoted from Psalm 118. As we've mentioned numerous times, this is one of the favorite psalms of the early church to quote from to point to the coming Messiah. Paul was revealing the contrast between those who are God's vessels of mercy and those who are God's vessels of destruction. And he says in Romans 9.33, as it is written, Behold, I'm laying in Zion a stone of stumbling, a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. We see this stone of stumbling a rock of offense is actually a person, as we see by that, that pronoun, whoever believes in him will be put to shame. This rock of offense or this uh, stumbling stone is Jesus himself. Here we see God promised to lay in Zion a stone, and Jesus is that stone. Jesus was the stone which the builders rejected, as Psalm 118 says. He was a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and he still is today. Literally, Jesus is a cause of offense for unbelievers. I would suggest that the entire gospel message is offensive to unbelievers. When the Jews of Jesus' day contemplated Jesus... He was often a reason for scandal. The word offense here in the Greek is where we get our word scandal from. He was a cause for stumbling for many of his own fellow Jewish people. Jesus was the opposite of what many of the Jewish people wanted in a Messiah. They wanted another king, Saul. 
They didn't want another, they didn't want King Jesus. But instead, they got a humble servant. They wanted a powerful leader who would crush the Roman government. But instead, he was mocked and beaten and crucified by the Roman government. They wanted a king who would exalt them, the nation. Instead, they got a Messiah who was humble and was humiliated and shamefully crucified on a cross. They wanted a Messiah who would exalt the Jewish nation. But instead, they got a Messiah for all the different people groups of the world. You see how offensive that is. He's not just for the Jews. The Jew first, but then the Gentiles. They wanted a Messiah who was like them. But they got a Messiah that said that all that they thought was the opposite. And they were wrong. Jesus was and is all about exalting God, not people. He's against pride. He's all about people being humble and serving Him. They wanted a popular, powerful, rich, self-serving king, but instead they got a rejected, humble, poor, sacrificial king. He was offensive to many of the Jews. He was scandalous. But for those who saw and truly got his glory, he was beautiful. He was the first human who had ever lived a sinless life. He did everything to humbly serve. He never returned revile for revile. He was beaten and mocked and crucified, yet he prayed for his enemies from the cross. Jesus was and is wonderful, beautiful to all of us who have been saved by him. But he's repulsive to those who hate God and God is not working in. So while Jesus was the object of great shame, we are not ashamed of Jesus because he took our shame. And now because we believe in him, we, all of us, are not put to shame when we believe in him. As it says, whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Why aren't we put to shame? Because he was for us. We worship him. He is good. And this is what caused Joseph of Arimathea. He saw something different in Jesus. And it didn't matter what kind of shame it brought upon him. He didn't care. He would honor that king even after his death. Joseph of Arimathea was one of the first believers who stood up and said by his actions that he was not ashamed of Christ. That's my king. Yes, Jesus was an object of great shame, but Joseph didn't care. Let me tell you, beloved, Joseph is not being put to shame right now. He is rejoicing with Jesus right now. And again, this is amazing grace, isn't it? We have seen in this passage that Joseph was a follower despite being a member of the Sanhedrin. He was a follower in a crowd of people who hated Jesus and condemned him to death. Joseph was a good and righteous man in the midst of a crowd of self-righteous hypocrites. 
He was a follower despite overwhelming evil influences around him. Now, was he perfect? No. But the direction of his life, he was good and a righteous man. Then we saw Joseph was a believer among the rich and famous. We saw that this was a contrast from what was norm, right? A follower despite many impossible circumstances. Remember, Jesus had said, it's, it's, it's harder for a rich man to get into heaven than an, an, a camel to go through the eye of a needle. But what is impossible for man is possible for God. And here we have it. We have a rich, famous man who is actually saved. Praise God, right? Joseph was a disciple who lived in a city that had overwhelmingly rejected his master. A follower despite being in the minority. And boy, this is big, isn't it? Instead of everybody, hey, look, if you want to if you follow Jesus because it's the cool thing to do or a lot of people are doing it, you're not following the right Jesus. Do you understand? The world does not love Jesus. Wide is the way that leads to destruction, many go that way, but narrow is the way that leads to eternal life. If you find it, Joseph honored Jesus even after Jesus died the most, in the most shameful way. We see this in verses 52 to 53 of Luke 23. A follower even after the one he followed was the object of great shame. This is where we left off. Quickly, I want to cover the last four observations concerning jo- jo- Joseph, and then we'll kind of move on into uh, Luke 24. I have... This doesn't fit homiletical structure today. All of y'all that want that, you're not going to get it. Sorry. But we're going to, because I have various different concepts I want to get across today. But follow along with me. Sixth, I want you to notice Joseph grew in his commitment to Jesus as he knew Jesus more. Turn in your Bibles over to John 19. I want to introduce you to, to Joseph a minute. We see here, and I can't develop this as much as I'd like to, but there's other passages back in John 12 that talks about Joseph. Probably not, it's not mentioned by name, but he is one that appears to have been a secret follower of Jesus, but wouldn't stand up. But you see in John 19:38, after the death of Jesus, after these things, Joseph of Arimathea, being a disciple of Jesus, but a secret one for fear of the Jews, asked, Pilate, that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate granted permission, so he came and took away his body. Now, I don't know about you guys, but this is this gives me a little bit of hope. <laughs> this verse here, this, this section gives me a lot of hope. You say, why does it give you hope? Well, because Joseph of Arimathea was wimpy. <laughs> As a whole, he was not courageous at first. I mean, he he was afraid. He feared man. He wouldn't stand up. But there came a point when his understanding of Jesus became so large in his mind that it did not matter. And he became courageous. And the Spirit of God worked on him. And you see this, that at one point he feared the Jews. But at this point, after the death of Christ, at a moment that you would least expect, he stands up and does something. That is totally contrary to what Jews would have thought. 
show honor to a dead man? A man that we hated? And you show honor to him? Oh, this, ladies and gentlemen, this is what true followers do. Mark that down. <laughs> true followers of Christ know Christ. And when they understand who he is, they're not ashamed of being shamed. You get that? We're not ashamed of being shamed. When somebody says, oh, you follow him? Yes, I do. You're going to stand for the truth even when others mock you? Yes, I am. He is good. Joseph got it, didn't he? He grew in his commitment, though. It wasn't something that just starts out, hey, we ain't perfect. Uh, we're not perfect saints right off the bat. We're saints, yes. We're declared right with God, right? Holy ones by position. But it is a growth. Praise God. Aren't you thankful, believers? That you don't have to be perfect today? That God actually works in us and, and creates in us and, and, and molds our heart to make us enjoy God so much that we then boldly stand for Him as time goes along? Listen, when I first became a believer, you wouldn't have found me here. I wouldn't have been standing here. No way. God works over time. And boy, I got a long ways to go. If you put me in front of like Grace Community or something, I'd probably cower under the stage. God's working though. And as my, my view of God grows and my awareness of Christ grows, He develops in me more and more of a courageous heart. It's the same way with all of us, isn't it? Be careful brothers and sisters, of judging those that aren't as courageous as you think you are? Please? R remember God is working. God is doing his work in his people. And he was doing it in Joseph. Joseph wasn't perfect, but God was working. Notice seventh, Joseph was focused on God's kingdom while those around him were focused on, his, on their own kingdom. You see that Joseph was focused on God's kingdom while those around him were focused on their own kingdom. In verse 51 of Luke 23, you can turn back there, it says this little phrase, who is waiting for the kingdom of God. This is very interesting because the king had just died. He knew him as the king, but he was waiting for the kingdom of God. I think it, most of the early church, and especially as things were going along, they had understood or thoughts that the kingdom was going to be established on earth and they were going to get it then. But then when he died, you would have thought, well, many of them would have said, forget it, I'm out of here. But that's when the Spirit began to open eyes and open the minds and open the hearts of these people. And they began to trust in Christ even though his kingdom was a heavenly kingdom that was already, but not yet, established too. It was already established in heaven, but not yet here on earth. And Joseph was one of these that was waiting for the kingdom of God. He was waiting for the kingdom of God. Listen, folks, he was a follower who was more fixed on the future than the world's temptations. Look, if your life is all about what you have here and now, and who you know here and now, then you're not like Joseph, ladies and gentlemen. 
Joseph was about the future, the eschaton, the end. He was looking to the kingdom. He was looking to Christ's glory. He did, why, does it, why is that so important? Oh, this is such an important point. I hope you get this. Why is it that when you look in the epistles that you see over and over that Paul is talking about the end times, the return of Christ? Why is he always talking about the end? The answer to that is because New Testament believers, New Covenant believers have to think different. We have to think of something in the future. Our minds and our hearts and our thoughts have to be on the future. They can't be on now. They can't be on all the things that are going on here. They can't be so focused in on what we have here. Because after all, as the church began to be persecuted, what were they supposed to think? We're in the kingdom? This is the kingdom? Christ is ruling? Nero's persecuting us? This is pretty harsh. This is how kingdom citizens are treated? Yes. Because we have an eye on eternity. Let me ask you a question. You've heard this little phrase. Is eternity stamped on your eyeballs? Is that what you think on? Or is it all about here and now? You know, I asked this question for my kids this week. I said, are you ready? You're like, Mike, your kids, Mike, are five, six, eight, and 13. And you asked, are you ready? You ready for the rapture? I literally talked about the rapture. Oh, no. Are you ready for Christ to return now? I think all of us need to ask that question. Are you ready? Are your eyes on eternity? Or are your eyes on now? If it's all about relationships, if it's all about your job, if it's all about this here, we're not ready. We're not waiting for the kingdom of God. Do you understand? Now, I know some of y'all are saying, well, God gives us these relationships and he gives us jobs and this is good, isn't it? Yes, it is, but it's not the controlling influence in our life. It is not the main thing. It's not what we think about all the time. It's not our main meditation. It can't be. Because if it is, listen closely. You're going to be disappointed. And you're going to get discouraged because we live in a rough world. How did Joseph of Arimathea stand up in this circumstance after seeing his Savior die? How could he do this? What's going through his mind? Why, didn't he, why wasn't he in pieces on the ground? Why was he able to show honor to this king that had died? Well, the answer is, is because he was waiting for the kingdom of God. He knew God was going to bring about his kingdom one day. His eyes were on eternity, and he knew God was in control. And so no matter what, he kept his eyes there. Folks, this is how we got to be, right? You understand we need to be this way. Can't be all about here and now. Notice 8, Joseph put himself in a position to be considered unclean in order to honor his king. This is amazing. A follower who did not let other people's wrong view of the law control him. 
Oh, how often we have fallen into this trap. We let other people's definition of what is good and righteous and the law be the controlling influence in our life, but instead of our commitment to Christ, our awareness of Christ. It's, look, it's not about religion. It's not about self-righteousness. It's not about trying to please people. It's not about any of these things. Joseph wasn't about that. Think about what he was doing, ladies and gentlemen. This was Passover. He was supposed to be in a hurry, too, and get it done before the sun went down, right? And what's he dealing with? A dead body. You know what that excluded him from? Celebrating Passover. He didn't get to. He would have to consider himself unclean. How about this one? I think he went home and celebrated Passover. You know why? Because I think he knew Jesus was clean. How about that for a thought? Jesus was the only clean dead body that ever was dead. Think about that for a second. Joseph didn't care what other religions or other self-righteous hypocrites thought. He was about exalting Christ and honoring Him even in His death. So he courageously stood. Ninth, we see Joseph honored Jesus after his death despite being clueless of the glory of the resurrection to follow. How many times have we thought this over the last couple of weeks as we've gone through the cross? How many of you have thought in your head, when's he going to get to the resurrection? He's going to be in. He's, he's going to talk about the cross again today. Get him alive, please. But folks, Joseph was clueless of the resurrection. Now, it's not that he hadn't been given information. The Bible, the Old Testament, speaks of the resurrection. Did you know that? In our passage today in Psalm 16, it's a reference to the resurrection. It's not that it wasn't there, but I have to admit it was very veiled. There wasn't a lot on it. It didn't make a lot of sense. If they would have exposited just that one verse, they would have been okay. The anointed one will not suffer decay. Well, he was the one. But Joseph didn't have that. He was clueless along with most of, the, most of the followers. And yet, he honored Jesus. Folks, this is kind of the main point I want to focus in on today. The pain of waiting and not knowing made the rejoicing of the resurrection all the better. God does that in our lives, folks. I want you to listen to me closely. We often look at our pain and our suffering and our struggles, and we do this. Why? Just get this over with quickly. But often those moments and the pain and the hurt and the agony make the joy of the glory of the resurrection all the sweeter. Do you understand? How do I have eternity stamped on my eyeballs? By the pain of living in this world. 
often sitting under the pain of living in this world causes me to what? Look forward. And that's exactly what he's doing here with Joseph and what he's doing with the followers. They were feeling the weight of Jesus' death. They sat under it. They agonized over it. And as we will see, it made the resurrection all the more glorious. We will see as we go through these passages, why why were the people in Acts so much different? Because they sat under the weight of seeing him die and also the glory of seeing him raised from the dead. Those two great truths will motivate you to do almost anything for Christ. But I want to focus in on this death and resurrection of Jesus. We see in our passage today that God made it very clear that Jesus died and rose from the dead. The events surrounding the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus make it overwhelmingly clear that Jesus did die. All the religions of the world, folks, go against the death, burial, and resurrection. They try to redefine Jesus' death. They, in a sense, say he really didn't die. He really didn't accomplish what he set out to do. All the religions of the world make it a point to deny this great truth. I would argue that even some of the false teachers within the so-called evangelical Christianity are denying this great truth. Their denial of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus is a little more subtle than the Muslims, but they still deny this gospel truth. And I kind of want to go on a side tangent here, and I want you to get this. These false teachers within evangelical Christianity preach messages that make Jesus' death and resurrection about everything except for sin being atoned for and our deliverance from the bondage of sin. That's not the thing they focus on. They make the gospel about humanity getting glory here and now. That's the health, wealth, and prosperity message. They make the gospel about everything except for denying yourself. They make it all about you. And that, ladies and gentlemen, you can name it what you want. It's still a denial of the power and glory of the cross and the resurrection. Do you understand? Jesus did not die is what they say. They say, in effect, Jesus came to make you feel good about yourself. That's a lie. Jesus came to die because you're a sinner and because I'm a sinner and we need deliverance. That's why Jesus came to die. Jesus did not die so you feel good about yourself. Jesus did not die to make you wealthy on this earth. Jesus did not die to end all suffering on earth for his followers. No, Jesus didn't die for that. Jesus died to end our bondage to sin and destroy the eternal judgment that his followers deserve. That's why he died. And if we deny that reason, we're actually denying the gospel. 
we're denying what Jesus died, that he died anyway. It's not about getting healthy. Did you hear me? Jesus' death on the cross was not, when it says he was wounded so that we could be healed, he's not talking, Isaiah is not talking about healing, physical healings. He's talking, ladies and gentlemen, about us being delivered from the judgment of God and being healed from bondage to sin. That's the point. Jesus died to end our bondage. Jesus died so we can die to self and live to honor God in obedience. How about that? Jesus died so that we could obey Him and enjoy Him. That's why He died. And if we change the meaning for why He died, we're in fact changing that He died. We're denying it in a subtle way. So you say, well... We say something like this. Well, I know Jesus. You talk to somebody in in some of these quote-unquote evangelical churches and they would say, sure, Jesus died and rose from the dead. But the purpose behind his death and resurrection is not what they say. So therefore, his death was not what he was doing. It's a different Jesus. So I want to warn you, brothers and sisters, if you listen to a sermon or watch a preacher and he makes the gospel all about you and what you get, run. Run. Yes, we receive blessings because of the gospel, but the blessing of knowing Christ and Him crucified and resurrected, that's our blessing. That's all I need. I just need to know my sins are paid for. I just need to know Him. Because what is eternal life? It is knowing God and the one whom he sent. It is not riches or health here. If it was, what would I say to the Richards family that their son just died? What would I say to them? He was 18. He was healthy. What would I say to them? I would say, glory to God, because now he's enjoying his God forever. But what about those prayers for healing? Glory to God, because he's with Christ forever. It's not about that healing or wealth or your best life now. Garbage. If your best life is now, you're in trouble. An unbeliever's best life is now. You're right. This is all they have. This is their best life now. But a believer, our best life's in eternity. And it's stamped on my eyeballs, and I can't wait to get there. All other religions of the world are much more blatant, though, in their rejection of the death and resurrection of Jesus. But you see Satan, don't you? He's going at it from every angle. Every angle to blind us to what the truth of the gospel is. For example, this week, the voice and leader of the Roman Catholic Church came out and said these words. The issue for those who do not believe in God is to obey their conscience. Okay, let me tell you what that is. The Pope. He said, the issue for those who do not believe, atheists, 
in God is to obey their conscience. You know what that is? Lies. Heresy. So in effect, what the Pope said is an atheist could go to heaven if they're a good person and follow their conscience. What? By the way, is there any possible way that evangelicals and Catholics can come together? No. No, we believe the opposite. The opposite. He said, in effect, a person's eternal destiny is not based on faith alone in the gospel of Jesus Christ alone. He said, in effect, a person's destiny is based on how well they follow their conscience, if they're a good person. Do we have anything in common with that man? Nothing. Everything he thinks is the opposite of what I think. Do you understand? Listen to me. If you're struggling and you're an atheist and you reject God, if you're a pretty good person, you're not going to make it to heaven. You're going to suffer in hell forever. Forever. Unless you repent and believe. That's hard, but that's the truth. And if you really cared about people, that's what you tell people. He's denying Jesus' death and resurrection. That's what he's doing. This is an outright rejection of the cross and the resurrection. The Pope is just like the vast majority of the Jews of Jesus' day. They stumbled over the rock of offense. He is stumbling over the rock of offense. Jesus' life and death says, You can't, and you murdered me. The self-righteous one says, Humanity can, and he, he did not die, or we don't even need him to die for us. Because if you just follow your conscience, you'll be okay. Do you understand? It hasn't changed, has it? Do you see the world has not changed, folks? This is hard, isn't it? But this is the truth. So I think the stage is set even more for a great union of all religions. Would you not agree? See, the Roman Catholics and the Muslims are almost exactly alike now. There is no need for a dying Savior. The Muslims say that he did not die. You realize that, right? They say Jesus did not die on a cross. Satan just started and said, hey, let's just go really out there. He didn't die. Now the Catholics have said you don't need him to die. Which basically is the same thing. They're ready. Both deny Jesus' death and resurrection. Oh, beloved, they are all stumbling over the stumbling stone. He is a rock of offense to them. They need a heart change and they need to know Jesus died. And he died for a reason. He died to provide what we could not. He died to atone for sin. He died to take the wrath of God for his bride. Everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. But instead, we will enjoy him forever. 
But all those who reject him, he is the rock of the offense. He is scandalous for the world. So the world's false religions reveal their wicked ways because they reject the person and work of Jesus. Satan's attack on the person and work of Jesus has been and will be relentless until the end. He either redefines the value of the cross and the resurrection or he totally denies it ever happened. So we are often called on to defend whether Jesus really died or rose from the dead. Do you realize that? So what is our answer? If somebody says, did Jesus really die? (laughs) I believe our passage today gives us ample proof that Jesus died, was buried, and rose from the dead. Plus, the rest of Scripture gives us even more proof. I find it sad there are countless articles and books. I mean, you could probably line our whole library with books trying to give the ultimate proof that Jesus really died and rose from the dead. You understand? You know how many books and articles are out there that try to prove that Jesus really died and rose from the dead? You understand? That's what books and books and books and by so-called Christians. Beloved, listen... I'm going to simplify this for you. There is one proof, only one real main proof that we need to know that Jesus died. You ready? In our century, in our time. One proof. You ready? Here it is. Write it down. God's Word says He's died and rose from the dead. End of story. That's it. Man, that's that's overly simplistic. <laughs> thankful that simple minds like mine only need the word of God. God said it. Look, look at verse 46. Then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. Okay, let's do a little test here. He breathed his last. Does that mean he died? Yes, he died. Okay? Somebody comes up to you and they say, how do you know he died? He breathed his last. It says it. The Bible says it. But how do you know he rose from the dead? They didn't just see a premonition. You know, they saw some, you know, figure. How about Luke 24, 6 in our passage? Ready? It's really complicated. He is not here, but has risen. Okay? It's not complicated. Y'all got it? He was died. He, he died. He was dead. And he's now what? Alive. He has risen indeed. I know this might make, not make sense to the world. But again, what did we say about the gospel? It is offensive. Listen, everything about Jesus is offensive to the world. (laughs) A dead man coming to life three days later is offensive. It makes no sense. But it happened. And what is the world going to say they want? Now, here's the tricky thing. What do they want? They want proof. They want proof. 
And what proof do we have? God said he died and rose from the dead. That's it. That's the main proof. And what are they going to say? That sounds crazy. Give me more proof. You have God himself telling you that Jesus died and rose from the dead. Isn't that enough proof? Well, Luke wrote it. Yes, Luke wrote it, but God inspired them and worked within them, and it was God working in them. God's Word says it. And all who are God's children know that this is His Word, don't we? We don't, we don't, is there a big debate in this room? I hope not. Do you understand that if he says it, we got it, we are with you, right? Whatever God says, we'll go with. Why? Ultimately, we know because God gave us ears to hear, right? Now, I'm not talking about physical ears because there are deaf people that are watching. That's not about it. It's about a heart condition, a heart that embraces the truth and knows that it is truth. Our passage today outlines several more proofs that Jesus died and rose from the dead. And I find it very interesting. Why does he give all these proofs as we see in, in, in Luke 23 to 24, 8? Why does he give all these proofs? Well, the answer is because they didn't have the New Testament. The people at the time needed this because they had one clear Old Testament passage that said that he was going to rise from the dead. One clear one. Now, there are some other allusions, and there is a pointing to a resurrection, the Daniel 12. There's, there's resurrection passages. But as a whole, talking about the Messiah rising and not suffering decay, that one right there, one. So God gives them proof. But we'll see in our passage today, these, these proofs are good for us. Same ones. But they're all in the Word. In other words, those people needed it even more than we do. But as soon as it was written down under the inspiration of the Spirit, we should know. How many times is it mentioned in the New Testament that Jesus died and rose from the dead? There's your project. Over and over and over. And this is all the proof we need. But we see here the proof was for the disciples of Jesus it was for those who were there and did not have the New Testament. They had some Old Testament passages, like I said, but there wasn't a lot of Scripture. But God made this evidence of His death, burial, and resurrection abundantly clear to them. So notice, second, the follower's response to Jesus' death confirmed His death and resurrection. Now, you'll see this as we go along, but the point is, is that they needed to know for sure that He was dead. Okay? They had to know for sure that He was dead. So how did God, listen closely... How did God confirm to their minds that Jesus was really dead? This is very interesting. Look at verse 53. It says, And he took it down and wrapped it in linen cloth and laid him in a tomb and cut, it in, uh, cut into the rock where no one had ever lain. It was the preparation day and the Sabbath was about to begin. Now the women who had come with him out of Galilee followed and saw the tomb and how his body was laid. Then they returned and prepared spices and perfumes, and on the Sabbath they rested according to the commandment. Again, we see here details confirm Jesus' death. 
Jesus had followers, and their response to his death helped to give them confidence later. Now, I can't stress this. I hope you get this. He does things. God did things in his providence to make sure that they understood that he was dead so that later they would be confirmed in their faith that he was who he said he was. First, notice the followers embalmed his body in verse 53. They wrapped it in linen cloth. We see in verse 53 that the followers of Jesus sought to care for Jesus' dead body. They performed types of embalming of the body. Embalming was obviously different than what we do today. But it was done for the same reasons. The mourners sought to temporarily preserve the human remains to slow the process of decomposition and to make the body suitable for public burial and to eliminate that horrible smell of decomposition. Right? Remember the story of Lazarus there where Jesus goes and he had died and she said, don't open the tomb. Why? Because he stinketh. Right, that was the King James Version. He stinketh. Yeah. The whole idea is that the body will decay, it decomposes. So what they did is they wrapped it in linen. And we see in John 19, look over there real quick, or you can just look here. In John 19, 39, it says, Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. So they took the body of Jesus, bound it in linen cloths with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. So what they do, they literally wrap the linen cloths and then they would put a layer of spices and aloes. And then they would put another layer of linen cloths. So he would be completely like mummified. Do you understand? His body would be this way. What would this say to the followers of Jesus? What would this say to Joseph? He is dead. They had to have that verification. By the way, we have all kinds of liberals nowadays that say that Jesus was put in the grave and then later got up and walked away. You know what that is? Garbage. Foolishness. Jesus' followers mummified the guy, put spices all over him. They knew would Joseph... Being of the member of the Sanhedrin, a judicial man, a good and righteous man, would he have walked away from seeing a body that rigor mortis had set in and say, nope, nope, he's alive. I laid him in the tomb, but he's really alive. No way! He was afraid of the Jews! If he found out the whole thing was a scam, or he wasn't alive, what would he have done? He would have spoke up. Here's a guy that went from afraid to courageous. Obviously, if he found out the whole thing was a hoax, what would he have done? Turned him in. Why getting himself in trouble? Do you realize that Nicodemus, it said, that Nicodemus that was with Joseph of Arimathea was completely impoverished, church history says, and that his family was completely impoverished. They died poor, persecuted people because... Nicodemus became a follower of Christ. It meant something for him to do that. Y'all know what a dead body's like, right? The muscles seize up. He was dead. And the followers mourned his death. Look at verse 55 and 56. Literally, 
It says, Now the woman who had come with him out of Galilee followed and saw the tomb and how his body was laid. Then they performed, they returned and prepared spices and perfumes. And on the Sabbath they rested according to the, ca- the commandment. Folks, this is, this is really neat. Now I want you to get this last point, and I know y'all are a little bit tired. Hang in there. We're almost there. The ladies went to the tomb mourning. They were crying, and yet to confirm his resting place so they could return. They needed to know where the tomb was. And they were grieving, and they prepared to honor him in his death by caring for his body. So they went home to get more spices. Do you understand? And prepare all this. There was no doubt in their mind that he was dead. They were working to prepare because he was dead. However, there's a strange twist again that really points to the proof he was dead and yet would rise again. Notice something. The followers who were, were kept from understanding that the resurrection was to come. Listen, folks. Look at Luke 24, 6 and 7 for a second. This is just really cool. Look at this. Look, look, this is so neat. Remember how he told you, this is the angels talking to him. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise. Now, how many times has Jesus told these people this, his followers, that he was going to die and rise from the dead? Countless times, right? Numerous times. And they heard it. These ladies heard it. I want you to stop, and I want you to think about this for a second. Do you realize why they did not remember? Why didn't they remember? Ever thought on that one? I mean, why wasn't it like Black Friday? Do you understand what Black Friday is? Remember Black Friday? Where all the people kind of camp out all day? And all night, sometimes for a whole week, looking forward to the sales that start at midnight. Why weren't these ladies sitting at the tomb? He's coming. He's coming. You know, any minute, man, that to- that that stone's going to roll away and he's going to just burst out of there. You just watch. He'll come walking out just like I saw Lazarus do it. I saw Lazarus. I saw him walk out of a tomb. I know he's coming forward because he told me he was coming forward. He's not going to stay in this grave. I know on the third day he's going to rise from the dead. What in the world were they preparing spices for? Why were they preparing spices for his body? Answer. God sovereignly kept them from remembering. Why? So that their faith would be confirmed even more afterwards. This is a wild thought. They could not be accused of keeping him alive. He looked dead. They wrapped him like a dead man. They confirmed that he was a dead man. And went back to prepare that he was a dead man. He's dead. Why? Because God kept them from remembering. Hey, this will preach if you think on this for a second. How many of you have said, said the gospel to your children and thought, man, when are they going to get it? When are these people going to get it? When are they going to buy into this truth? 
when is my spouse going to grab this thought? Please, you know, I've gone over it this way and this way and this angle and this angle and this angle. Why don't they get it? (laughs) Answer, they will when God decides to. They got it when he wanted them to get it. Why? Because this is the way that he was shown to be the dead man that rose from the dead. He confirmed more than anything that he was the dead man. You know the irony of the thing? Guess who does the opposite? The enemies of Jesus. Do you realize they remembered? They said this. This is even more of it. They said this. They said, he said when he was here that he was going to die and rise from the dead. They remembered. The, the enemies remembered, but the followers didn't. <laughs> Why? Oh, God was using these enemies as pawns in his story. Why? Because then they go to Pilate and they say, seal the tomb, put soldiers outside, make sure. Look at how glorious our God is. You tell me that God doesn't control the hearts of kings like rivers of water in his hand? Come on. Ladies and gentlemen, he does everything. Rejoice in that truth. Isn't that great? It's not up to us. It's up to him. We'll close with this. But How do I know that Jesus died? God said it. <laughs> how do I know Jesus rose from the dead? God said it. It's good enough for me. How about you? Let's pray. Father, thank you for your glorious grace. How you take difficult circumstances and turn them for your glory. Lord, we do pray for the Richards family. We pray that you will comfort their hearts and help them to find their hope in the resurrection to come. Help them, Lord, to know the glory of Christ. And I pray for their heart. I pray that you will comfort the brokenhearted. Thank you, Father, for reminding us of your glory and showing us that your son did die and rose from the dead and he is victoriously reigning now. Help us now, Lord, to act and live in a way that reflects this understanding. We serve a risen Savior. We worship you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.